my guest today is Peter Tunney. I experienced Peter's work, his astonishing art, long before I experienced the man Peter. Peter is this sort of a legitimate force of nature with boundless creative energy who loves spreading positive messages in an unconventional way. After a career in finance and biotech, where for a, a number of years, he was actually Jonas Salk's business partner, and then nearly a decade defined by wild adventures, photo curating and documenting travels through Africa with photographer and New York Society fixture, Peter Baird, Tunney returned to New York in 87 and just declared himself an artist out of nowhere. And he quickly became a central player, artist, and gallerist in the legendary downtown art scene in the 80s and 90s, working with nearly every medium imaginable to create these large-scale mantras that have appeared everywhere from billboards to private collections and his own galleries in Tribeca, as well as Miami's famed Windwood Walls, where I first experienced his work and was blown away by it. I knew the first time I saw it, I had to know the artist behind the art. And Tunney, it turns out, is not just a world-class liver-of-life creator and raconteur. He believes in humankind and the good that results from endless small acts of kindness. Over the years, Peter's donated countless works to deserving organizations, with his main philanthropic efforts now being criminal justice reform, supporting wrongfully convicted individuals, and ending the stigma of mental illness. In today's free-ranging and story-driven conversation, you'll get a powerful sense of the fierce kinetic and creative energy that drives Peter and also discover how an accident that nearly ended his life in his early teens set in motion certain events that would shape who he'd become and what he'd awaken to decades down the road. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com You and I have a freakish number of parallel moments. We're both Long Island boys of a pretty similar age. You grew up in Smithtown, I think. I grew up in Long Island. Fell in love with magic uh, at a certain point in our lives. 
ended up in the world of business and then had this sort of like awakening to the inner artist and kind of like made a, a left turn into a world that I think nobody but us saw coming. I almost used that exact vernacular when I was describing this is a time where I was being very successful in business, but had also just declared myself an artist. I had an overlap there for about five years. Really shitty artist, really competent business person. Then became a really shitty business person on drugs and a very good artist and then off drugs, right? I made a left turn. I made a radical left turn when I should have made a right, but it worked out okay. So here we are. Yeah, exactly. The journey is astounding. You're um, growing up in Long Island. It sounds like um, you were you had this momentous uh, thing happen to you when you're something like 13 years old. You're in a really bad yeah. car accident that you describe as almost dying from. On May 20th, in 1975, it was like, one thing you remember about a day like that is it was like 105 degrees in Stony Brook, Long Island. It was just an inordinately hot day. We didn't really have a lot of hot days like that. I was going to go play tennis with my friend Rick up at the school tennis courts. It's a couple of miles from my house. We'd ride our bikes there. And shortly on our bike ride, cutting through another school yard, schoolyard, we found our other friend, Mike, who was also going to play tennis, but he was heading back home. He said, it's too hot. You guys are never going to make it. It's crazy hot out here today. I remember that. It's like, you know, you're such a baby. We're going to go play. And we went up there at like noon on these asphalt courts, you know, and we lasted, I don't know, a couple of games. I mean, we were just melting out there and we got on our bikes to come home. We stopped at a guy's house on Ridgeway Avenue on Mud Road, Mud Road. I got hit on Mud Road. It's almost like Wiley Coyote, right? So I went to the house and there was no water coming out of their hose. I went to fill up my water bottle. I walked back to my bike. I could see it right now as I'm telling you. I throw in my foot over that yellow bike with my little water bottle clipped on there, which was very fancy at the time, and went down this long hill, probably a mile on like a 30-degree grade. So, you know, you're going as fast as you can, and that is defined at that age by you're going so fast you can't pedal, right? You're, you're past pedal power. And you're probably going 35, 40 miles an hour, just ripping down this hill. You have to go across an intersection, which I did. And there was a car coming up the other way. And boom, we had a straight on collision like that. She hit me on my left side, knocked me like 150 feet up the road. My left femur popped right out of my body. It's a double compound fracture of the left femur. It's a really gnarly injury to have, by the way. Have like a one foot piece of your bone, like 50 yards away from your body. And you're basically just going to bleed out. And then tons of other lacerations, shattered hips, broken stuff. And um, so I laid there on the pavement, you know, just bled out. Took them quite a while to get to me where I was. The kid who was with me, who was my best friend at the time. I, I don't know why I even remember this now, but I think I, I asked him once, what were you doing? He said, I was throwing up behind a tree. Just remember him saying that. But he had to go to someone's house and be like, you know, he didn't want to leave the scene. And the woman is there running around with my bone or something. It must have been a crazy scene. The poor thing. So I ended up in the hospital. Strung up like like in a cartoon movie, you know, cast up to my armpit, arm up, this up, that up, just so much stuff. And um, black and blue, black and blue from the top of my head to my toes. You know, I was just a. It's a really crazy situation. The only thing I think about that situation today is my poor parents. Mm. It's, it's incomprehensible to me 
you know, I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. My five-year-old is running and falls face down, you know, and, and gets a mark on his chin or a fat lip. I can barely handle that, you know, and I'm an old gangster, been on the scene of a lot of accidents. I could put your femur in my back pocket while smoking a cigar and drag you to the hospital. I'm the guy you want, bro. I'm the guy you want in these kind of things. I'm almost like, like I pull over for every accident or any scene, you know, just thinking I could get in there and help. And I've been on tons of them, strange ones in Africa and you name it, overdoses, broken bones, all that stuff. Something happens to my kid like that. And I think now my mom walking into that hospital, seeing me like that, that's, that's really too much to bear. You'd rather just hear he was dead. He's in the coffin. That's, that's like, that's hard to, but who wants to see that? Like that is just too tough. And you're going to see it every day for a while, all day, every day. It's not like you're getting better in a week or something, you know, you're going to lie there for a while in a very iffy world of even existing, right? You have complications. I mean, I was stable, but I was seriously injured and um, I just got hit so hard. I had to lay there for a while. And in my case, that was like around four or five months just to mm. just lay like that and get a healing. So my mother, God bless her, dude. It's above my pay grade. She came every day to the hospital. I was like, what do you want today, Peter? I was like, how about White Castle? You know, because I knew I could go whatever I want. You know, so I ordered White Castle or McDonald's or whatever. She brought me my favorite home-cooked meals every day, sat with me for hours every day in this condition. And while you're in that condition, many times they have to come in and treat you. But it was very painful. I mean, you're, it really had some moments there that were really painful, you know. And my mom was there. Watched your kid go through that shit. Yeah, I I can't even imagine. I mean, we're both parents, and and just like like my mother never said a curse, never had a drink. My parents certainly never kissed another person, and nothing like that. They met at a soda shop in Flushing when they were like seventeen. They got married when they're twenty five. Stayed married for fifty eight years. Loved their kids every day, right? Every day, you know. Wow. So yeah, I got hit by a car. Yeah. I mean, when you're coming out of that, you know, like at that age, especially having been sort of like in the hospital and through treatment for so long, do you have any sense thinking back whether you emerge from that in any way, sort of like not physically different, but just sort of like intellectually or emotionally? Did it change no. you in any way that you felt like lasted? Well, there's a couple of really good roads to answer that question. I could tell you one thing for sure. And I didn't know it then, and I only discovered it in the last, say, 15 years. I'm a sober person, haven't drank or done drugs in a long time. And I was sharing one day. There was another guy. He was very nervous about going into the hospital. He'd never had an operation. I was like, dude, here's what I was going to say. I've had like 25 operations when I was a teenager. I mean... What you're going through is like candy land, you know? You're just going to be fine. Breathe out. Don't worry. You don't want to go into your operation tomorrow all stressed out. I can remember the moment when they put you under anesthesia, right? They put it in, they said, count backwards from 100. I remember I had a surgery. I'm going to bring this all back when I was a stockbroker and I was joking around and I said to the guy, 100, 99 and three quarters. 99 and a half. I thought I was so clever. You know, I'm about to have my lights put out. You know, I think I got to 99 and a three eighths, you know, and I was gone. And so I meant to tell him that. 
And as I opened my mouth to tell him like that I was in the hospital for a long time and stuff, I just blew up and started crying. I couldn't get the words out for like five minutes. All I was going to tell him is you're going to be fine. I've had a lot of operations. But I was thinking about getting injections of Demerol is what was going through my mind. And this is all kind of replaying the tape and piecing it together, right? And I didn't expect I was going to start crying or anything. It just overwhelmed me. It was like throwing up a bowling ball. The thing just came out and I, I couldn't stop. It was like really like channeling, like a convulsive moment in my life. I don't have a lot like that. It's not something that happens to me frequently. And I realized that that was like the beginning of a 30-year drug run. The warmth, the feeling of that Demerol. I was on like increased injections of Demerol on my back for like five months. So one thing that may have changed me then is, you know, I think my drug addictness was kind of formed around that. And then the more I've learned and think about it, I don't think that's true at all. I think I just came out that way. I think I was seven years old. I remember looking around my parents' liquor cabinet. What am I doing in there, right? So like now that I've played the tape and have a lot of experience, I've shared my story a million times, listened to other people thousands of times, I realized like, wow, I was just a sitting duck for a Demerol shot. That's all. But that moment kind of marked something for me, right? That's one thing that happened. Two other things I was going to mention, amazing I can even remember these today is, they must have asked my mom at school, you know, I've kind of been like this my whole life. I have quite a lot of people in my life that know me my whole life, besides my brothers and sisters, which of course, not everyone's brothers and sisters get along and spend every day together for their formative and adult years, but we have. And I've kind of been like this the whole time. I would say I'm better today, right? But my second grade teacher would tell you I was like this. I took over the class. I was the star of the drama. I was the president of the school. I, you know, I, I worked for the kids. I was like an eight-year-old Michael Corleone running second grade. You know, I had stuff going on all the whole time. And so I think I've largely been that way. But in the hospital, um, being like Ferris Bueller, you know, like save Ferris, they said, you know, what are we going to get for poor little broken Peter Tunney in the hospital as a class? And many people asked my parents that, I imagine. And my mom said, I think he likes magic. I liked magic as much as any 13-year-old kid. I got one magic set for Christmas and, you know, used it a little bit, right? It wasn't like I was really deeply in. And so what happened is people sent me magic. Such a brilliant thing that happened to me. It's one of the few things you could do on your back when you can only move your arms. You could practice sleight of hand. So I practiced. We didn't have Google phones, videos, or anything. Books, magic books. You learn how to do a trick. People would bring me tricks. I became a magician. I was in pediatrics. You know, if you're in pediatrics for like five months in a room with three beds, you probably see 200 other patients coming in and out with it. And you're, you're like the old guy on the ward, like MASH, you know, like it's your tent, right? And I saw a lot of kids, you know, after a couple of weeks in the hospital, your friends don't really visit you every day like your mom. They go play sports and do what they do after school. And from there, I would entertain the other kids in the beds next to me for the one to four days they were there. So I learned magic in the hospital. That's another thing that happened. And then the third thing 
which I'm sure is baked in here somewhere. I do just in my bones know all this shit can end any minute. Not any hour, not any day, not when you're 70, not because you just got to call it. I'm talking about like while we are fucking talking, shit goes down. And everyone always says, you know, he died so suddenly or this was so sudden. or Well, that's how it happens, bro. <laughs> There's very little advance warning in this stuff unless you're 88, you know, and you're in a hospice or something. But it's all like that. You go to your doctor for a checkup and he's like, we'd like to do an x-ray. And then he's like, we should talk. And then you get called in. He's like, let me tell you what, you know, there's that thing or your phone rings. Someone tells you something you really don't want to hear. You were not prepared for that. You were prepared for A and they gave you K. You're like, wait a minute. Right. And so, you know, I end up naming my company. The time is always now. I was attracted to an artist that did an artwork that said the time is always now. These are like the little breadcrumbs along my path. Um, I've had the time is always now since 1991. I got introduced to that like 1984 or five, all through incredible, weird happenstance. And so I think from the accident, you know, I was talking to someone, almost anyone I talked to like this for a while. is like, you got to write a book. These stories are incredible, right? But I've never done it. So I was talking to someone about it, and they said, if you did write a book, what would be the title of the book? I said, I think it would just be called, I'm Still Here. Mm. Like, that's emotional. I'm still here. I'm living in this day, talking to you today. And um, many, many times in my life, many, I would have loved to die, maybe take my own life, or at least hoped not to wake up, right? Because things were so dark and just unsurmountable. It was too much. It was too much. And thank God I didn't because <laughs> it wasn't too much. I was an idiot, right? But it's so easy to get trapped in that mental quicksand. It's really mental. It's not really a physical thing anymore. It's a mental thing. You have to have your marbles together. You've got to find some peace your existence here there was a french philosopher i wish i could quote it perfectly i just don't have it but he said they're in the middle of the pandemic or the beginning i just saw it come across my news feed somewhere someone quoted him and he said something like it occurs to me that the entire problems of mankind stem from one irrefutable fact our inability to sit quietly in a room alone for one hour, right? And it's a famous thing. It's Descartes or somebody. Yeah. And I would add to that because it's more complicated than when he said it. And feel comfortable in your own skin, engaged and a part of this universe and a purpose for you to be here. And then you can really enjoy your daily engagement as you're doing your purpose. You get more satisfaction out of life. You're off the pity pot, right? And so that's the track, man. There's no other track. Yeah. It's interesting also because when you look at the the way that you have embraced your life, and really it sounds like you had this awakening in your teens that your average person either doesn't have until 10, 20, 30 years later or never has at all. Let's slow down. I did not have an awakening in my teens. I was an idiot. 
I had awakening in my 40s reflecting on my teens when I was yeah. in it through the whole thing. But I did navigate through that. You know, I was the funny guy. I was doing magic tricks. I do know I had empathy for the other kids, whether they had a broken leg or a concussion. And really also saw some really tragic, devastating. And um, it was formative, but I didn't know it then. And I say that about almost everything. I always joke around and say, I went to a party when I was 13. And they had cute girls, marijuana, and beer. It was on Long Island. I love this party. And I came home when I was 43. That's another lens to look at those stories. Because I wasn't like a hero in and out of the hospital. But as I look back on it and the people that were with me, I, I will say I navigated that pretty well with some joy and fun and magic. And I was still funny and everything. I, I don't remember, you know, just, you know, collapsing and crying over my condition and stuff like that. And there were definitely some really hard days. So, yeah, I think a lot of stuff came out of the accident. It's funny. I end up having a company called The Time Is Always Now. I end up making art that says The Time Is Always Now and Gratitude. Those are really more funny things that I don't think anyone would have expected, say, 20 years ago. It's just completely unexpected. And so those things, like many things in my life, have been formative for me, not necessarily when they happened, but when I've had a moment to soberly reflect on them later in life, that's when you realize how lucky you are. I wasn't thinking then, this is great for me. I'm going to come out a better guy. That's not what anyone's thinking. You're in trouble. You're surviving. You're trying to get through one more day and put on your game face and hope this ends. And the next day, instead of it getting better, you have a setback. I had a fall and I broke my leg again by accident. That was a devastatingly difficult mental anguish for me and my parents and my doctors. You had a big setback. Like, so, yeah, that's my answer to your car accident story. There was a lot of stuff about the car accident. The clipping is two feet away from me right here. Mm. As are most of the little bits of evidence of the things I'm telling you. I have proof of all of it, right? But having lived this way now, since 90, for sure, 91, when I got a gallery and I had a big house and I kept all my stuff around me, I have everything. I have every picture taken of me since I was born with my dad's white pen ink on the black page of the photo album written. Peter at birth, <laughs> Peter at one, the day we went to Disneyland. I've had all that. And then during the 10 years I was with Peter Beard, I made a lot of diaries and kept, and you know, it's not like the warm sun was beating on my back today. It was basically photos, photos of girls, photos of strange things, photos of amazing things I had never seen. I ended up in Africa in really wild places doing really wild things. It's very photographable. And so I'd put one or two of these pictures in my book every day. And that's an edit from maybe taking 10 to 50 rolls of film every day. And then you get it developed, usually unprofessionally, at like a one-hour photo, which turns out to be great. And from that day, from your four or 500 photos of the day, which you're flipping through at speed, because the next day you're going to take 500 more. So it's like returning your, your emails, right? You want to finish this day. So we'd stay up late at night. And I picked two or three pictures that would adequately annotate the day, you know, yeah. do them in my book. And I did that for 10 years. So I have those books too. So I have the whole story is yeah. around me and I reflect on it. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's starter pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere rib beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365 day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. I, I mean, I'm curious with all of this. Um, What's the impulse underneath it? Impulse is a really good word, you know. I'm not really a hoarder, but now I've resigned myself. I like having all my shit around me all the time. I find comfort in it. You know, 
my wife, when she first came to visit me at my house in Long Island, um, <laughs> she was like, uh, is this your storage facility? Like, do you live here? Like, why do you have so much stuff on top of the stove? You know, like, why is every window jammed up with all these little things? And then we got married and she said, you know, we're going to have to move out of here. You're going to have to clean all this stuff up. It was several houses on like a compound. The garage was full. The guest house was full. It was full. Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. And I said, um, let's do it. Let's make a deal. We'll, we'll do it in like five years. I'll clean all this shit up. Well, five years came and went. And like on year seven, I had to do it. And so I cleaned out all that stuff out of my house. I had like 10 guys for like 10 days. I had like 10 tables on my front lawn. It was good weather. It was in the summer. We would just take stuff out. Cases, trunks, baskets, boxes. Some had wet bottoms and everything in them was ruined. Some had wet bottoms and nothing in them was ruined, right? And everything in between. And I went through everything. And my wife was out there helping us. And what I thought was, I'll save all the cool shit, and I'm going to do a show called Time Capsules. And I'll make really thick frames, and I'm going to put all the stuff in them, like Joseph Cornell kind of thing. It's my brilliant idea. And uh, there was a magnifying glass, kind of a cool horn handle, but the magnifying glass was really broke, you know? And I, and I had these big boxes, like for bounty paper towels from a store, big cardboard boxes. It was like garbage, photographs, time capsules, kitchen supplies, you know, like that. We're sorting stuff out. And my wife threw out this magnifying glass. It's like, what are you doing? She was like, Peter, listen, look at it. It's a shattered, broken, unusable magnifying glass. And I don't know what my exact thing was, but it was kind of like, you know, we used that. Alan Bushy and Rick Nielsen and I, we used that when we were kids to light leaves on fire and stuff. Like, I remember that magnifying glass. It's so cool when that leaf first goes on fire. And she's just like, dude, you are so sunk, you know? Like, you're attached to a broken <laughs> magnifying glass. I don't know what. They all have meaning to me. I don't want to lose them. And I think it's like, I don't want to lose time. I don't like that time is slipping by. I really don't. I want to slow that down. I feel the clock in my back. And when I came into New York City in the early 80s, kind of make my bones, right? And somehow I was taken under the wing by some really heavy duty movers and shakers. They liked having me around. And I believe me, I didn't know anything about anything. I wasn't like a smart kid. I didn't know about art. I didn't know shit. I never heard of Cannes Film Festival. I never knew anything. I came from Long Island. A big trip for me was Manhasset, you know? We went to the mall. It was amazing, you know? And that was an all day trip. And um, so consequently, then when I got in business, they became clients. Most of my peer group was like 30 years older than me. You know, I was 25. They were 55 to 70. And they were the who's who of New York City's finance and movers and shakers and real estate guys and rich guys that could invest money and stuff. And some really interesting guys. A really uh, wealthy client. He was an unbelievable pool player. And he was fast daddy. He was Minnesota Fats and I was fast daddy. And he taught me life lessons. And all these people, they're all dead. They're all dead. And like not all of them, but most of them. And a lot of them are like 88, 90 and stuff like that. A friend of mine, he died when he was over 100. I had dinner with him when he was about 100. He was fantastic. Like a really a core piece of New York City, you know, with overarching wisdom of everybody. I love spending time with these guys, let alone Jonas Salk and other like more known people that I got to spend time with. Um, 
And I'm realizing, like this week, I'm thinking, that's what's going to happen to me. And someone's going to be like, oh, did you hear? Yeah, Peter Tunney, of all things, he died gardening. Can you believe it? The rake hit him in the temple. And who is going to clean up all that shit of his? And then in a week or two, they're not going to talk about you. Like no one's hanging around staring at your casket for a month. Maybe a day if you're Elvis or Michael Jackson or president. You're going to line up and look at you for a month. You're not going to get that. What you're going to get is this podcast and what we do later today. And that's kind of been my horizon for a long time. And I think that is partially formed by the car accident. Probably maybe a lot formed by the car accident. But as early as I can remember, like five, seven, I always felt like something was just about to go terribly wrong. Hmm. I just always felt that way. You just had a sense. I still do. I still do. And, and I'm right, by the way. <laughs> I'm thinking it's about to go terribly wrong. Like, I've been confirmed, you know. My, my paranoia was real. They were out there, you know. Um, and so it's in spite of that. That's really the guts of this whole thing. That in spite of thinking that, I'll tell you a good idea. If you think everything's about to go really wrong, don't go like smoke 50 hits of crack because it's going to make that feeling worse. If you're listening, you're thinking about that, that's just going to get worse, right? You got to go the other way. You got to go the other way. To realize that there is a lot of stuff that's about to go wrong. But I got great guidance early on. This great old friend of mine, wise old Al, he always said to me, Peter, you just keep your side of the street clean. Let everybody else worry about theirs. Until your side is clean, you have nothing to say to me. And he was right, because my side of the street was not clean. And the longer I stay in this mode, I realize how dirty my side of the street is. It's kind of like the soberer you get, the sicker you realize you are. That's a humbling fact. But it's, it's an embraceable fact that's actually humbling and refreshing. You've got work to do, so go do it. And that's how you get through these days. You do what you're supposed to do and let the chips fall where they fall. So I'm at a point at this moment in my life, I kind of don't really mind what happens because I don't control that. Anymore. I spent 30 years trying to control the universe. I did a really shitty job. Didn't make anything into anything. I just made a mess. Now when I'm just trying to really, I'm just down to one of the few, few, few things you have is what you think about. And your behavior. Those are like the uncorruptible pieces of liberty that you will have. And so you do something. I'm lucky. I'm super engaged in what I do right now. Like I'm a super engaged. Um, when you say, what's the impulse that makes you do it? Holy shit, the fuck if I know. But I do do it. I'm like a wind-up toy. I, I, I'm telling you, if I'm being honest, almost every night when I go to bed, I think I am never going to make another piece of art again. I'm never going to talk to another motherfucking person. I'm so burned out and tired of all of this bullshit while the world is burning. We're just playing our fiddle and I am done with it. And I wake up the next morning, boom, I'm recharged. It's like they plugged me in. And then it's like what you're getting right now. It's like this all day, every day. 
It's like I'm electrified, but I'm comfortably electrified. I don't feel anxiety. I'm grateful to be electrified. I'm grateful the batteries are still working. I'm grateful I can walk, bro. I can run down the street and make a basket. I can't dunk, but I can shoot. <laughs> like, I'm fully functional. I've got yeah. two amazing kids. I've got an amazing wife. I was surfing this weekend with my five-year-old son on my surfboard. That felt like bucket list shit. We were surfing, by the way, in like 40-mile-an-hour winds in a crazy hurricane, turbulent ocean, in a pouring rainstorm. I've never done that. That's a lot going on with your five-year-old on the board during shark migration or whatever the fuck it is. Like, that was amazing. The sound was so deafening out there. Like, you couldn't talk to each other, you know? So you're just doing it silently. You're in the grip of this turbulent washtub of an ocean. And my son, because we were waiting for a wave in a very small, calm part, he said, Daddy, while we wait, I'm just going to take a little rest. He put his head down like he's going to take a nap. I'm just out there surviving. I got back on shore. I was like, thank you, God. That was amazing. And yeah. that's I feel a lot. Thank you, God. That was amazing. Yeah. I mean, so, me so many metaphors in that one moment also, Ooh. right? Just like on, on every level. On every level. Every level. That yeah. turbulency, that moment, that's my life. I wish you could see behind me. There's an eye chart here. It says finding calm in the chaos. Mm. You know, so I'm out there with this guy. He's a pro surfer, like a spiritual guru. I don't say that about a lot of people. This guy is like the ferryman in Siddhartha or something. He is taking me places this last month while we're doing this surfing expedition. And uh, we got on the surfboard. He's very into conserving energy on the paddle out. Arguably, great idea. If you don't conserve energy on a hard paddle out, you will not be surfing. You'll never even get out, right? So he's, he's into breathing. He was a professional surfer, like one world-class surfing championships all over the world. He's an amazing, amazing athlete. And just a, his body is like flexible steel that floats. It's just unbelievable. You know, he's surfing a wave in that turbulent ocean. He goes into a handstand, for example, on the board. He's doing a handstand. I'm like, what? We're like drowning. And so he said, Peter, today... We're just going to work on your breathing. We just want you to breathe. So I didn't paddle at all. He just pushed my board out. It's like a surf caddy. I did no paddle surfing in a violent sea. He pushed me out there. He just said, I just want you to think consciously about breathing. We're going over a big wave. He's like, breathe, breathe. He keeps telling me, breathe. So I start breathing. I'm breathing. Then he tells me, after a couple of surf rides, we go on land for a little land lesson. He said, listen, when you stand up on the board, you see how you stand up on the board here, we're in the sand. He said, when you stand up here, now I want you to breathe while you're surfing. I was like, while I'm surfing? That's a lot to think about because I realized I'm kind of holding my breath. I get up on the board, I go, <gasps> you want to talk about a metaphor? How's that one for you for your whole fucking life? Breathe while surfing. I sent him a text the next day. I said, that was an epic session. Breathing while surfing. What a concept. I never knew. I didn't breathe for 29 years, bro, during any activity. Breathing while surfing was a revelation. It came to me this weekend. That just shows you what a mental case I am. 
And he's just laughing at me. He's like, you didn't breathe for 15 years? I said, I didn't sleep for 10 either. I thought those things were optional. I was busy. And you're not alone in any of that. I mean, that seems to be the persistent state of so many people through life. You know, that metaphor of breathing while surfing. There's a term, it's called breathless. So yeah, breathing while surfing. It's got nothing to do with surfing. He knows that. He's the ferryman in Siddhartha. He's telling me to breathe out. So I stood up on the board. The first time I had so much to do to catch a wave because I'm a really bad surfer. I caught the wave. I made the right, the kid, the thing. I realized I didn't breathe. I forgot. I forgot to breathe. So the next time I got on the board, I was by myself, got up, and I went. And I breathed down into my position. You want to talk about a revelation? I've never done that in my entire life. I've never done it, just white knuckling it. I breathed while surfing, while actually standing up. And I got like an extended ride, I caught a little reform, and there was another little thing. And I went down, I kept going. In the end, I was just standing on my board in water, just balanced, standing. The ride was over, and I was just standing there. And he's in the back going, whoa! You know, if you were on the shore, it would just look like, you know, I've I'm like, I've got some issues and I got my first surf ride. But it was that. He saw me breathe from that turbulent sea. And remember, in the pouring rain, I, I don't think I've ever really been out in the ocean in the pouring rain. I'm talking about like hurricane pouring where every face was just covered with droplets. And there was just so much sensation. You were so enveloped. And he wants me to breathe. He picked that day to teach me to breathe. Wow. Yeah, probably the best day actually to do that. He's a genius guru. Of course he chose that for me because yeah. I'm going out there thinking maybe we shouldn't even surf today. Like that looks crazy to me. Like, how do you get out there? He said, today we'll just do breathing out there. Let's just feel the water and breathe. And he's so comfortable and so calming. Yeah. It's just interesting. You said, um, you just mentioned also breathless, right? Because if you break that down to its components, it's breathe less, which at first is counterintuitive because you know, like you're being told to breathe, to breathe more. But when you actually look at, the great spiritual traditions, you know, it's actually about not breathing less, but breathing slower, which makes you breathe less. And it's that slowing down, it's that focus on deep, long breaths where you're breathing less frequency, but your entire body down regulates so that you can actually be more present in life. You know, so it's, it's, it's interesting that the word breathless, if you break it into its components, breathe less and then less frequently. And actually, it gives it the opposite meaning almost. Well, you know, life is complicated, right? As I'm sitting around here, I'm seeing two paintings. One says fear less, intentionally yeah. two words. Right. My other one says time less. And now I'm going to do breath less. Yep. And yeah, man. Yeah. He said, you know, he was a professional surfer on the circuit for 15 years. And then someone taught him breathing. And in one hour of being taught how to breathe. Before he did these breathing exercises with this guy, you would try to hold your breath as long as possible. He held his breath for a little over two minutes. He said, after one hour of learning how to breathe, I held my breath for three and a half minutes. One hour. He said, in learning how to breathe, that's what shifted gears and made me the surfer I am. Because this guy, he's a beast, but he's an effortless beast. He'll just go out in the craziest paddle out you could imagine. Because unlike a lot of places where it's clean and you could time it and everything, 
this is really violent crashing sea, and it's not huge. It's eight or ten feet, right? But the the speed at which the waves are coming are like every three seconds, and there's like seven hundred of them out five miles. Like there's just no break from it. It's a relentless pounding surf, and um, he just jumps in because I said to him one day, "Let me just see you go on the outside out there." He said, "It's no problem for me." He said, "The challenge for me on days like this is I try to do it without getting my hair wet." It's like, what the fuck are you even talking about, bro? And then you watch him go in the water and just, he's sitting way on the outside, way on the outside and just surfs a couple waves in, goes into a handstand, just comes in, surfs, turns the board around. (laughs) Just, wow. Do you get the sense that, because I've experienced this, for me, I actually have a daily breathing practice and I have for about a decade now. And I have this kind of amazing experience of life slowing down. It's almost like I can, I can observe things happening in slow motion. And I feel that during you know, my morning practice. But I also notice that over time, over days, months, you know, years, that starts to ripple out into just the way I move through the world. It feels like when you can control your breath, it gives you almost this freakish ability to, it sounds bizarre, but slow down time a little bit. I get it. Listen, that's my whole thing. That's what I want to do is slow down time. Who knew it would be from going slower? Who knew that, right? It would go from breathing like a simple thing like that. Those have been literally for me epiphanies and revelations in my arc of recovery from drugs and alcohol, let's say, right? I I learned a lot of stuff in there that I never, ever even thought about. I mean, things just never crossed my radar, you know? And so when you have something like breathing or a morning meditation that allows you to, I love when you say move through the world, you know, I saw a video of me once. God, I wish we were on video of me just walking down the street outside this nightclub. I mean, I looked like a marionette puppet on crack. I mean, everything was moving and every, I was just walking down the street and I was look. I remember looking at it with the guy, like while I was on crack and being, that is bizarre. Is that what I look like when I'm walking? He said, that's what you look like when you're calmly walking. It's like, wow, that's just, it's just embarrassing. You know, my life, where I've been, how I've acted, it's just, it's, it's not really embarrassing. It's just really humbling. You know what I mean? I'm not embarrassed because I'm not a bad person, but man, if I acted just so, so uninformed and base for about 50 of my 59 years, but seeing the world slow down a little bit, it's easier for me when I observe another person. And we realize what the prescription for that person is. It's really easy. Here's an easy one. Don't smoke crack anymore. <laughs> Do a morning meditation and say 90% less and start to listen and have your mind open for some new ideas that are going to come to you. That's, that's pretty good advice. You know, yeah. you watch I just bouncing off the walls, filled with anger and being a victim. Because that's one of the commonalities, let's say, of your big 20, 30, 10-year drug and alcohol run, whatever your crazy run might have been, that one thing that I see through the lens I look at now is, without exception, all of those people, myself included, I realized that every story I told 
I was a victim. Mm. I was a victim. You wouldn't believe what happened to me. You just, you just wouldn't believe how unfair the world is. You wouldn't believe these guys, these scumbags ripped me off in this deal. I can't believe that that's what this guy did. You should have loaned me more money. Whatever it was, you could have bought me a house and I would say, I want a better house. I can't believe you're making me live this way. The shower is terrible water pressure. Whatever it was, you're a victim. And when I hear that coming from someone, that's the tell. That's the tell. And I can tell you for me, I'm not a victim of anything. I might be the luckiest guy out there. I'm not a victim of anything. No one ever victimized me. I was the perpetrator. I didn't know that. I wasn't the victim. I was the perp. I didn't know that. I was a self-seeking missile ripping through whatever. That's humbling. Mm. That's humbling. But when I hear that, you're a victim in, in every transaction you've described. I mean, do you think that's really true? Is there, do you think you might have a role in that? And so that's so glaringly obvious, right? If And especially if you're really not a victim, if you've had it made, but you're just victimized the whole way. I mean, I, I hear this every day from whatever. Woman on the housewife show broke a heel, whatever. I can't believe it. The most important night of my life, you know. To wrongful incarceration for decades where you are a victim. Yeah. Those guys that I know come out, lots of them, not all of them. The first thing they said, we, I was at a dinner innocence project dinner i think there was about 30 guys up on stage or 20 something guys for sure and they each took the microphone at like the annual innocence project dinner so they each have maybe three to five minutes without exception every single guy in that microphone used the word gratitude in the first 60 seconds i am so grateful to be here today for the people that loved and cared about me when i was inside perfect strangers taking care of me i'm so grateful today to be reunited with my family i just I mean, they're so grateful. They're so grateful, Jonathan. Well, how do you do 30 years in max for murdering your wife that somebody else murdered? And all your friends don't think you're guilty. And you come out and you tell me you're the most grateful guy in town. It's stunning. And if that ain't humbling, then nothing is. Because if he could do that, I mean, I can't do that. I didn't expect, I thought they'd come out angry. And of course there is anger. I'm not at all, you know, minimizing the situation. I'm just saying, like, I've shaken hands with these guys wearing a suit. They were this family saying, I am so grateful. And I've asked them, I said, how could you be? How could you tell me you're Mr. Gratitude? One guy said, he was familiar with my art. He was an artist. He did art in prison. He did 34 years. His name is Keith. He said, oh, Peter Tunney, you think you're Mr. Gratitude? No, sir, that's me. I am Mr. Gratitude. Believe me, I'm the world champion of gratitude. And I was like, dude, I've lived this incredible life of Riley. I got two beautiful kids. I bombed around the world with supermodels, rode elephants in Africa, lived on yachts and planes and stuff in a mansion and, you know, never lost a tooth. I've been in a thousand fights. Like, I'm so grateful you just can't believe it. Plus, you know, I was in the grip of drugs and alcohol. I'm not anymore. Like, that alone is a huge relief and a gratitude thing. He said, well, Mr. Hotshot, here's what you didn't have. You didn't have perfect strangers loving you and caring about you for decades to help get you out of prison that you don't belong in. I had that. You don't have that, do you? He said, no, I don't. I, I just cry telling you that because that guy shakes your hand. And I mean, with like no bullshit, it like sends electricity up my arm into the back of my neck. 
he says, I'm Keith, I'm Mr. Gratitude. Like, fuck me. That's some high-level shit right there. And those guys, by the way, those exonerees in particular, those are our teachers. And so that whole landscape bring me into that world of exonerees, prison, prison reform. I have so much empathy for these guys, right? But they're helping me. Like, like It's not like the great Peter Tunney shows up and makes their day. They are schooling me, bro, on big time real life lessons that allow you to do what we talked about earlier, to sit still, to observe, to slow down. Why aren't we all glad to have a couple months stay at home? Where, what are you in a rush for? Get back to normalcy? Just rush right to that grave after 20 more years of hard work? Like, how about breathe? And let it happen. Yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com When I think about your work and um, the words that you focused on for years or the phrases you focused on for years, um, it occurs to me after this conversation that it is as much a form of expression and an invitation for everyone else as it is a reminder for you to revisit those same ideals. But it's backwards. It's only for me. Mm. And they have to pick it up. Mm. This is my therapy. Yeah. I started painting gratitude, you know, kind of coming into sobriety. I wasn't really very grateful. I was a victim. I was a little bit pissed off. You know, I, I had incredible successes along the way and interesting times in life. I basically threw it all away, like a lot of people. I ended up walking out of rehab one day, 
literally with like a shopping bag with some random items in there, like a half a Snickers bar, rosary beads, a broken phone, and a Sharpie, like just some weird shit that I was traveling around with. Literally my nights before I went into rehab, because I went on a big run before I went in. And uh, it was January 2005. And I wasn't particularly grateful being penniless, owing the IRS a ton of money, no girlfriend, family really down on me. Not a lot of places to turn. The guys that really thought I was a great guy, I could go visit them. They were crack dealers, you know, go hang out in their basement in the South Bronx or something for a week and all your pain would go away. Um, I was pretty pissed off about the whole thing. I didn't like it. You feel like you lost. But this, again, is in your mind, you know. However, every single person that loves you feels like you won. They're like, oh, my God. I mean, this is a story I could tell you literally hundreds. Oh, my God. At least we can sleep tonight. We know where Johnny is. At least he's safe because your parents have been living on pins and needles from when you're 17 to 27, thinking if the phone rings at night, it's because you're dead or overdosed or in a car accident. What a horrible way. How did you do that to your parents? I did that to my parents. You know, I got asked one day in some therapy seminar about all the people I hurt along the way. I said, how could I have hurt anyone? I was locked in a bathroom by myself for two days. How does that hurt anybody? And I really believed that. I thought, how could that hurt anyone? Tearing my fucking parents to pieces while I was disappeared for those two days. I didn't think of that because I was a self-centered, self-seeking, drug addict prick. That's what you turn into, no matter what you say. If you're, if you're deep in addiction, you're just selfish by definition. Right. It's like it's like the ultimate. It's just about you. It's just about what you're going to get in your next thing, the next thing you need to serve you. And so when you get thrown in and you feel like a real loser, in fact, your family might come down to you and say, you're a total fucking loser. <laughs> just tell you, like, here's why you're a loser, because your wife hates you and she's wonderful. Your kids hate you and they're wonderful. And you've just been drinking for 10 years being an abusive asshole. That's why you're a fucking loser, because you are. So you go into rehab as a loser. But everyone. Everyone outside is like, thank God he's there. At least he has a chance at life. And that's true. That is true. That's the best place for you to be. And so I always think about that. It's so interesting. Like as you're being escorted through the little glass doors, you feel like you've lost that life. And everyone else knows you now have a chance to win. Wow. I mean, that's kind of breathtaking, right? That's like in every case. One of my favorite expressions is, no one comes into AA on a winning streak. <laughs> okay, like That just summons the whole thing up. Nobody ever, ever, ever walked through that door of their first meeting on a big win. It just doesn't go that way. You know, we're broken and, and we get better. And the hope is that really, for the most part, everybody can get better. We can all get better. If we could only breathe, we could only tell the truth, we could embrace courage. So these words and these paintings, you know, it's deep because it's as deep as it goes. It's life and death deep, right? And it's cast a pretty broad net. I didn't think it would be successful. I was just molding the mashed potatoes because I had to, to fucking survive me. Me. It's for me. I made a gratitude painting. I didn't even feel like I should deserve to make a gratitude painting. I didn't make one for a long time. One day I made the word gratitude into a painting. But how am I going to sell so cheesy. I'm doing like Hallmark card messages. Like I'm not Damien Hurst and Jeff. I'm not in the cutting edge of the art world or anything like that. 
But when you do that for 25 years, every single day and never miss a day, then you become that guy. And so like now, you could say whatever you want. I guarantee you, there ain't a single living artist on this earth that's outworked me. I've never missed a day. I work every night till two in the morning. Like, like a lot. And I've just put in, I figured out once I did like 30,000 hours making word paintings. So I'm like a triple expert, right? I'm redundant. I should have quit already. But here I am. And last night in my studio here, I had a really nice breakthrough because I made a painting. But I see that's going to be like 50 paintings. And the important thing about it is it's not that the paintings will be so great or anything. It engages me. I'm excited to come here today. I, I just can't wait to get the first two layers done so I could do this new trick I'm doing on top, which is so simple. But it took me 20 years to scratch over some of my letters. And it's amazing. It looks like an actual painting that you would see in a museum. It, it now has enough to it. It was too easy. I was too commercial. It was too slick. It was too whatever. It was too cheap. I, I did it. I, I just can't wait. When I'm off this call, I'm just jumping right out there. By the way, right now I'm sitting here. I wish I had a picture. I have 17 tables set up in the gallery. I know that because I counted them last night. It's like, how many fucking tables are here? And every table is like a different, totally separate project. Hmm. And I just go down the line. You know, it's kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge visiting these old Christmas past. Like this one is about magic because it's a big playing card so i know the genesis it came out of my love of cards and magic and sleight of hand and the next one i'm looking at the table right now it has all my old record albums on and i'm doing things on those and i'm listening to my 45s in my record player like you know reliving my yeah. life the records by the way are quite transporting your old 45 and then the next table is this painting with this new breakout there's the empty canvas next to the new canvas and um and then, you know, down the line around like that, thousands of things cut out in here. And um, I never want to open to the public. It's way too intimate and private in here. My guts are just spread out everywhere. There's really nowhere to walk. You have to be careful just walking around. Usually just me and one person in here in the Windwood walls. I have the whole walls as my campus, just me. I can go outside smoking cigars, doing stuff, making paintings, throwing stuff around, just, just in the zone brought to me via pandemic mm. you never know the truth comes through the strangest door the pandemic allowed me after about two months it took me to find some balance of what i'm always fighting for it, you know when you said i want to slow down time that that really makes me horny you know like i'm like all right <laughs> tell me more tell me more right <laughs> trying to do that but it's there's a huge element of that that could just be in the category of time management. Like you'll have a lot more time to do stuff. You can manage your time a little better. You maniac, right? And the pandemic has given me the space and time I've been fighting for. And every other interview before pandemic, people say like, what do you do every day? I said, if you were really inside me and you saw what I'm thinking, I'm just trying to get out of this conversation. I'm trying to get away from these people. I, I want my wife and kids to go paddle boarding so that I could have this one out. You know, whatever kind of thing I'm doing. And by the way, I love going out with my wife and kids. But there could be a moment where you just want to sit still, right? I don't really have them. The pandemic got hundreds and hundreds of hours like that. Oh, just so that's a silver lining of a horrible thing. I'm so busy. I'm super engaged and I have no visitors. I'm in a windowless cinder block 
warehouse with gates around me that no one can possibly get in. I'm just sitting in here by myself. I didn't know. That's what I always wanted. I didn't want to. I used to want to have the grand studio to show it to you and impress you and show up. It's just one room. It's, it's spacious but modest. There's nothing fancy in here. But it is all the relics of my life. All those diaries are stacked right up over there on the table. I don't even have to open them. I'm just comforted looking at nine years of my life and seeing those busting out books and know that's in there. So that's one glance. You spend a day in here, stuff is popping off in your head. So now I have the space where I'm allowed to just pop off. I could spend a few hours without anyone talking to me or on the phone, just puttering around in here. And I may make something, I may not. I may make a note like I did today, breathless, which is already up on the board. Mm. And so, yes, today is the day. Nothing happens unless first a dream. I read the news today, oh boy. Human nature, it's my most recent painting. I thought about that a lot. Pandemics, protests, election, the way we treat each other, global conflict in war zones. It's human nature. That's who we're battling against. That's what this call is about. Our default position as, as humans is not really great. I have seen it be great mostly when the shit hits the fan. Hmm. So it feels like a good place for us to come full circle. So you, name of the podcast is Good Life Project. If I offer up the, the phrase or the word to live a good life, what comes up for you? For me. The best of life for me is quietude and peace of mind. I want to read a book in my garden. And then I want to sleep like I slept when I was a really little boy. That's it. I haven't done either of those things. And I want to do that. And a good life. You know, listen, there was a long time I wasn't grateful. It was a long time I was on drugs. It was five years on drugs. It was really dark. I was in a really dark place every day. I wouldn't change one single thing. They could kill me in this chair right here. I had such an unbelievable run. But thank God I got sober so I could say that because otherwise I would have thought I died in hell. Like they tortured me every day since I was born and then I died in hell. That could have happened if I died anywhere between five and 40. That's how I felt. But I feel wonderful about all those years today. They were vital, vital, incredible things for me that I survived that gave me incredible life lessons, you know. So good life for me. You know, I'd take one more day. I, I'm very, very attached and in love with my children. And um, that's a terrifying knife's edge, you know, God forbid, right? God forbid. And I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm in that world too. I mean, wrongful incarceration and mental health are really the things that I've spent a lot of time on the last 10 years. And it's not all happy horseshit and unicorns, you know, and if you can play the role you're supposed to play that somehow helps someone else get through these impossible situations. And I'm compelled to do that whenever I can. I mean, that's kind of the highest order of things, right, for me. And now I have my own kids. So that's high order, too. So the balancing act of leaving it all in the ring every day 
never bring anything home and balancing that and, and being able to play joyfully with your children the morning after that dinner and after that interaction. It's just like acceptance upon acceptance upon acceptance upon acceptance. And this old lady once put her like 93-year-old finger in my face. She said, Peter, Donnie, I have some advice for you. Accept everything, everything. It's like, holy shit. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, she was right about that. You don't have to. There's an option. Don't accept it. And suffer. And just suffer fucking through it. Until you get to a place where you can accept it. That's it. So that's a good life. This has been, I don't have a good life. I have a fucking amazing, blessed life. I'm just like, I knock on wood twice a day. I don't, I don't know how I got here. I can't believe what I'm doing. It feels like I have no job. And it's so weird. You know, the other side of this is so weird and incomprehensible. Like, really, I'm like the gratitude painting guy now. <laughs> really? But from that, I will just tell you, the world showed up on my doorstep daily daily i get like a who's who of the most interesting people up and down the ladder and um yeah i think thoreau said sometimes the sicker is the nurse to the wiser you know yeah how about yeah how about yeah and so i'm just here breezing through this little life not really controlling any outcomes of anything trying to keep my behavior within a reasonable range of living in society. I'm barely there. you know. And um, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying every sandwich. I just got this cappuccino while I'm sitting here. I'm like, it's so frothy. <laughs> I just feel like it's all such a bonus. It's all such a bonus. What are you going to do next? It's just like stuff like that. You know, surfing with my kids and my wife. I, I would never even dream that up. In fact, the morning of, I was like, we're definitely not going out there. I'm definitely not going to rehab. I definitely don't have a drug problem. I definitely this and I definitely that. And that guy's definitely an asshole. It was very black and white for me. But now it's just all mushy gray. It's good. It is a good life. You know, I like Elton John song when he said, you know, Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kid. You know, it's cold and lonely out in space. Yes, it is. And you could be cold and lonely out in space sitting in your basement. You can feel that. Every bit of that. I used to tell people I feel like I was the guy walking around with the tether on the spaceship and it broke loose. And I'm like floating through space at 17,000 miles an hour. Alive, probably for a day or two. Or until your air runs out a couple hours. Knowing you will never come back. You will never come back. I felt that way most of my life. I was just drifting away from it. Came back. Surprise. Good to be here. That's a good life. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E 
typ.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.